welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we love you, and we believe with all our hearts, and we want to confess to you right now that you are the one true living God. You are eternal, you're incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, completely just, and completely good. You are the source, the only source of overflowing joy. And you are sovereign. Nothing happens except through you and by your will. And so, Lord, as we come before you, great God that you are, we confess our sin. We confess that we have sinned and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed way too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended you. We have offended you in the things that we have done and the things we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, and our whole strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And God, we would have no hope of peace with you, and we would be cast away from your joy, from your presence forever, except that you've made a promise in Jesus. You have promised us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've done that in your son, and that grace is something that we want today. And so we confess our sin, and we receive that forgiveness and that cleansing, and we thank you for the blood of your son that cleanses all sin. We thank you for the fact that no sin in this room is more powerful than the blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that his cleansing power never runs out. Father, this morning we pray that you'd bless your churches in this valley and around the world. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would, the sound of the gospel would fill the earth. Lord, louder and louder, that all nations would hear. We especially want to pray that you would bless our friends and missionaries, Lorian and Holly, in the lands that they're in today. Lord, we pray you give them courage. We pray you give them protection. And we pray that you would give them great fruit that they can enjoy to your glory. Father, you alone can order our unruly desires and the sinful affections of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would change us. Lord, you've promised to change us. In Ezekiel 36, you said that you would sprinkle us with clean water, that we would be clean from all our uncleanness, and that you would cleanse the idols of our hearts. You promised that you would give us new hearts and a new spirit, that you would remove this heart of stone that we have and give us a heart of flesh. We pray, Lord, that you would do that miracle this morning, even now, even in the worship service, through the preaching of the word and through the table, we pray that we would feel our hearts go from stony to alive and loving you, a new heart that desires what you desire, that wants what you want that delights in your commands and loves what you promise. We pray, Lord, that as we unpack your word, that we, it would be prophetic to those who are here, that it would speak to their hearts in a way only you can, so they could leave and know they've met with the living God. We pray, Lord, that you would apply the gospel, that you would apply this word to everyone's situation here. Lord, we pray that no one would leave this room unjustified, not forgiven, without salvation, Lord, there's no need for that, Lord. We pray that they would not leave here without full assurance and full faith in your son, Jesus. And we pray you do all these things for your glory. We pray that you would reserve all glory for your son, that you would guard it and give it only to him and no one in this room. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say,
Amen. So, we're in Exodus, and uh, we're just starting a series in Exodus. We um, did chapter 1 and half of chapter 2 last week. Our plan for Exodus is leading up to Easter. We want, it, we want to land right at chapter 12, the Passover, at the time of the Passover. So that's the plan, and um, so far so good, but we're only three weeks in. Last Sunday, we looked at the birth and protection of baby Moses, and we saw God's amazing providence his amazing creative sovereignty in how he preserved Moses. And everything's going well in this book so far. It's all very exciting. This deliverer has been kind of recognized. He's been protected. We kind of have a feeling where this story is going. If you're reading this for the first time, though, when you got to the middle of chapter 3, which is where we'll be, verse 11, you'd be surprised and you'd actually be let down. You're actually really used to this story, but if, if you're reading for the first time, you would, you would be let down. You'd be disappointed. Imagine hearing this story for the first time, that God's people have been promised that they'd be a great nation and they'd be given a land, but they find themselves in slavery. But then there's this son born who is uh, protected from death in, in a little basket, put in the Nile, then gets adopted by, um, by Pharaoh's own daughter. And then in verse 11, check it out. It says, one day when Moses, now he's grown up, he's 40 years old, according to Stephen, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out and looked at his people, and he looked at their burden, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. What would you assume is going to happen next? What happens right after that, if you hadn't heard the story? He leads an uprising, they get out of there, right? That's clearly the way it's going, right? That he's going to be this redeemer, he has compassion on his people. That's what the narrator would lead us to believe, that all of a sudden the exodus is going to happen. It's time, right? Because Moses, by all accounts, seems like a really promising redeemer. He has this sweet origin story, you know, that all, every superhero has, right? Moses has been saved from genocide by putting a basket in the Nile and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and, and he's been raised up in that household. Um, when you look at uh, Acts 7.25, Stephen indicates that Moses, by that time, he knew that God had set him apart to be the one who would lead the exodus. It says in Acts 7.25 that Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God had given them salvation by his hand. So he's got this origin story thinking, okay, this is the one, this is the Redeemer. Moses had this great training. Stephen again in Acts 7.21 says that he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter and brought up and given all the instruction of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. You think, this guy's prepared. This is the guy, right? And yet, being raised as an Egyptian, um, Stephen says that he also still identified as a Jew, though, because you could think 40 years being raised as an Egyptian, perhaps he thinks of himself more as an Egyptian. He didn't. He thought of himself as a Jew. Acts 7.23 says that when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And so he has a real sense, these are my people. So he's got this great origin story. He's been really prepared in Egypt. He, he sees himself as a Jew. And notice, guys, that Moses is motivated by justice and compassion, not his own interests. Take a look at verse 11 again. It says that when he went out, he saw his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. That word saw there, that Hebrew word that's translated saw, just doesn't mean that he looked at it. It meant that he felt it. He saw their burden and he felt their burden. And he felt the injustice of what was occurring there. Stephen again says that he saw the wrong and he defended the oppressed man and avenged him. 
Moses' guys here is motivated by justice and compassion. He's not motivated by self-interest. Moses is the kind of guy that won't let weak people be, de- be beat down. And he has the courage to do something about it. If you drop down to verse 17, you can see he does it again when he sees those seven ladies that are trying to you know, water their sheep and some people run them off. And it says in verse 17, but Moses stood up and saved them. Moses is that kind of guy. Moses was not content to stay in his palace as a lofty observer when he sees his people being victimized by this. He, he comes down to rescue them. And so if you lived back then, guys, and you saw this guy and you saw all that happened, you would think, this is our man. Let's follow him. This is our hope. Let's get behind this guy. This is our redeemer. This is the guy who can get us free. But guys, Moses was too weak to be their redeemer at this stage in his life. And his weakness was anger. Look at verse 12. Moses looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. This is, a, this is violence here, right? This is murder. This is cold-blooded murder. This is a bit premeditated too. He kind of looks around before he does it, right? And he beats him down and he hides him in the sand. And you might say, well, I think it's righteous anger. Anybody think that? Anybody think, well, maybe it's righteous anger. What does it take for, the, for something to be righteous anger? Um, how many of you guys have ever felt like you had righteous anger? How many of you guys were right? Okay, so you could have righteous anger. It is a thing, okay? Jesus had it when he cleansed the temple. It exists. We're horrible at it, though, okay? Every time we're angry, we feel like it's righteous. Like, that's the point, right? Here's three things you need for righteous anger. It needs to be anger about a real sin, okay? Moses had that. It needs to be anger about an attack on God's kingdom, not yours. Okay, that's one we often don't pass. Mm, yeah, right? Okay, Moses has that one too. But then it needs to be anger expressed in a righteous way. You're like, man, this is so hard. You know, it's so hard to get this right. That's the one Moses didn't have. That's the last part where he failed. He murdered the Egyptian. Moses is, in chapter 12, he's a failed redeemer. Look at verse 12 again in the middle. It says, he struck down the Egyptian, hit him in the sand, and he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he saw the man in the wrong, and he says, why do you strike your companion? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So here's Moses. He's been overcome by anger. It's not going to be the last time. This is kind of Moses' besetting sin, his anger. He gets rejected by his own people as their redeemer, right? They're like, who made you a prince and a judge over us? They're not interested in having him be their redeemer, which is a great move, by the way. The Proverbs say, don't befriend an angry man. Don't be a companion with an angry man. Certainly don't want to follow one. So they made a very good move here. And then Moses is forced to flee and live in exile for 40 years. You know, he runs away. He ends up in Midian. And and if you're reading this for the first time, or if you were there, you might think, man, this is kind of disappointing, right? Like, this seemed like the guy. I guess he wasn't, you know? Uh, He seemed like it was. What's God doing in this, you know? What's God doing in having somebody come along like that that looks so promising and and then not redeem him? And keep in mind, guys, that chapters 15 through 25 are a very costly delay for the people of God. It's 40 additional years of slavery. Some people that might have been able to live free will die in slavery because of this situation. This is a very costly delay, 40 more years in slavery. What is God doing? I think God has something to teach us here about redemption. 
And the thing he wants to teach us about redemption in these few verses is that only God can be your redeemer. Okay, only God could be the redeemer. Moses can't be the redeemer, right? No mere human being can be the redeemer. And we're going to see that in the last couple of verses of our passage. But only God can be your redeemer. No human being can meet your deepest needs for redemption. And you're like, yeah, of course. We know that. We think we know that, right? But we don't know that. We're always tempted, aren't we, guys, to trust in other people to give us ultimate happiness, to give us purpose, to give us peace, to give us worth, don't we? Don't we look to other people? It's a lot easier to look to other people. We want other people to rescue us from our hopelessness or our fear or our unhappiness or our emptiness. Our emptiness, we call it boredom, but it's, it's called emptiness, right? Or our worthlessness. We look to other people to do this, guys. Your friends cannot keep you feeling happy and accepted and valued. That's not their job. They won't hang around for that for very long. Your marriage, guys, was not meant to complete you and fill the emptiness in your soul. Is that controversial? Is it con- Let me say it again so like, you could just deal with how controversial that is. Marriage was not meant to complete you by filling the emptiness in your soul. That's not what marriage is for. Marriage isn't, you, you know, you take two vacuums and hook them together and, and see if they can fill each other. Okay, a lot of the misery of marriage is because of that. Fill me. No, 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 you fill me. Two vacuums. No one full, right? Okay, marriage was not meant to complete you by filling the emptiness in your soul. That could destroy a whole wedding industry, right? It could destroy a lot of books and movies. Okay, I got another one for you. Prepared? Kids were not meant to be your purpose for living or your identity. That personal? Anybody hurt? Anybody feel that? Think about it. Kids were not meant to be your purpose for living. That is so controversial in our culture, guys. That's blasphemy. Kids were not meant to be your purpose for living or your identity. They weren't meant for that. They can't bear that burden, guys. Children were made in God's image, not yours. They're about his worth, not yours. They can't bear the burden of being your purpose for living and your basis of identity, okay? And when you try to make anyone other than God our Redeemer, you'll be disappointed, and they'll be miserable. And I know sometimes maybe some of you have gotten in a relationship, and the person, the boyfriend or girlfriend, they really want this from you. You're going to make them whole. And you like it in the beginning, because they like you so much. And then there comes a time where you go, I can't carry this anymore, right? And that's what idolatry does. Guys, no one but God has the power to be your redeemer. Jeremiah puts it this way in chapter 17, verse 5. He says this, Cursed is the man or woman who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is what it's like when we trust in other people to be our redeemer. He says this, He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabitable salt land. And then it says the opposite. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who makes his trust in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for his leaves remain green. And he's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Underline that last part. I think we live in a time of anxiety. That is not a uh, Christian virtue. He is not anxious in the time of drought. 
He bears fruit unceasingly. Guys, only God has the power to be our redeemer, to meet our greatest need. And Exodus is, is, is about that. In the Exodus, God is going to redeem his people in a way that makes it absolutely clear that only God can save, right? That, that's why God will not save his people through the violence and anger of Moses, right? Because that would be a man saving them. Um, that's why his people won't be saved by a human-empowered revolt, it's because God is going to save his people from bondage through supernatural plagues and a parting of the sea to make a point that only he has the power to save. There's a reason, right? That's a different narrative. That's a different hero, right? That's what the story is about. It's about only God being able to save, to show that God alone has the power, and so God alone gets the glory. Amen? You see why it's all framed that way? That's why it's framed that way. That's why your redemption in Christ is framed that way, which we'll get to, is that he alone has the power, he alone gets the glory. And so God, okay, we looked at it from the the, uh, Israelites' perspective. Now let's look at it from Moses' perspective. What is the Lord doing in this delay for Moses? What is uh, God doing in Moses' life? Um, through this massive failure and disappointment. Because remember, in verse 11, he's pretty sure, like, he's the deliverer, he's the guy, he's going to come in, he's going to free these people. And now here he is, he's a murderer, he's a fugitive, he's a foreigner. This is a big turndown, you know, uh, in his life. In, in verse 15, Moses could easily have assumed that he had failed so miserably that God was done with him, right? You see it? He sat down near a well. It's depressing. It's meant to be. It's a country song, right? It's going to get depressing, Right? Have you been there? Have you been in the place of Moses? Uh, let me ask you this. Is there a past sin that haunts you? Something that you feel like has made you permanently benched, right? That God has dismissed you from his mission because you failed him in some massive way? Like that you had your chance, but you blew it, and now you're banished? And that God doesn't have any use for you now? You ever felt like that? Guys, if you're in Christ, none of that is true. Okay? If you're in Christ, none of that is true. That's actually all lies, right? It wasn't true for Peter's denial, was it? It wasn't true for David's adultery, was it? And it's not true for Moses' murder, okay? These are powerful examples to show us that it's not true. In the deserts of Midian, God is going to take Moses. He's not only going to give him forgiving grace, but he's going to give him forming grace. He's going to form him in the desert in a way to prepare him for further ministry, Look at verse 15. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And then it gets positive. And the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs for their father's flock. But shepherds, some other shepherds, came and drove them away. But Moses stood and saved them. And he watered their flock. And they came home to their father, Ruel. And he said, how is it that you've come home so soon? I guess they're normally like battling, you know, they're battling shepherds all day, and it takes them a long time. Dad's at home going like, yep, guess you had a rough day. You know, this is weird. <laughs> and they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, even drew water for us and watered the flocks. And he said to his daughters, well, where is he? Where have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses' his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son, and he named his son Gershom. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. See, God isn't done with Moses, right? He who began a good work in him is going to be faithful to complete it. It's grace. There's so much grace in these 40 years, guys. Um, there's the grace of God gave Moses grace by giving him a wife. Amen? Moses um, defends these, these women, And it just so happens, providentially, 
that these are the daughters of a Midianite priest named Ruel. Now, Ruel's name means friend of God. This is a good start. And uh, he has another name, Jethro, which you'll see later, which means his excellency. So he's like, his excellency, the friend of God, priest of Midian. This is great, you know? This is a good title. God um, provides Moses a wife from the daughter of Ruel, which is perfect because the Midianites are actually descendants of Abraham too, okay? So after uh, Abraham's wife Sarah died, he remarries. One of her uh, sons is Midian, who is the father of the Midianites. So this is kind of from the line of Abraham. He finds a wife that's from the line of Abraham. She's just some pagan out there. Ruel and his family were probably believers in the God of Israel. Ruel was probably a priest of the Lord, the Lord we know, right? Later, Moses treats him as a wise mentor, which is super cool. It almost seems like Moses is a little bit more attached to the father-in-law because it's like he was good to dwell with him. And you're like, he's more interested in the father-in-law, it seems like, as a friend. Um, so he's got this great father-in-law. He ends up marrying his daughter, Zipporah. Zipporah means, her name means like little bird. And she was God's grace to Moses, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Adds something to Moses' life story, right? Think about all the stuff he goes through. And he was able to come home and talk to his wife. And, yeah, you know, we did the gnats today. And uh, I think this is going to do it. You know, like he had that camaraderie of his wife and was able to, to, to be with her. And, and God gives Moses the grace of time. I think these 40 years were important. Moses, in verse 11, it seems to be in his prime. He's 40. That's the prime, if you ask me. That's a good way to go. But guys, Moses wasn't, well, this seems controversial. Moses wasn't in the prime of his life, though, was he? Spiritually. He was not in the prime of his life, spiritually. Guys, our culture, our youth-obsessed culture, makes you feel like everything, all the best things are done by the young. Right? I can repeat that with one name. Zuckerberg. Okay? I actually think that's a point in the biblical favor. I don't think that's an example of the youth doing great things. But it's up to you to decide. But our culture makes it seem like the most valuable things are done when you're young and it's only downhill from there. God's word's exactly the opposite. Values age and maturity. God gave Moses the grace of training. You know, in Midian, God made Moses a shepherd literally so he could spiritually be the shepherd of God's people. This was genius, guys. Sheep are super frustrating. Have you guys ever worked with sheep? I'm a veterinarian, and when I was in vet school, I, I did a rotation with the, they call it the food animal area, which is sad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, there's horses, and then there's like the food animal section. So it's like, you could eat any of these patients you want, you know? Um, but I was, there, there was a little sick sheep, and we, and it was yeah, di- diarrhea, it was dehydrated, super hard to find the vein, I'm putting the catheter in, you know, it's like, this is a pain, little sheep, put the catheter in, suture it, turn around, look back, and the mother is chewing on the fluid line and ripping the catheter out. And I was like, I like this one, I don't like you, right? God was training Moses here in the desert with sheep to give him patience to lead God's people, which he needed because they were particularly difficult people. Um, God gave Moses the grace of identifying with his people. Remember, Moses' first 40 years were like riches, right? He lives in royalty, lives in a palace. And while his people were uh, foreigners in a strange land and, and subjected to all kinds of difficulty, what God's doing in these 40 years is he's helping Moses identify with his people, right? As foreigners in a strange land, as sojourners. He's identifying with the suffering of the Jews. He even names his son Sojourner because of that. And so God is graciously forgiving and forming Moses in the desert of Midian. And he's not wasting any of those 40 years. 
Because you could think, okay, Moses is 40, he's got 40. You guys realize Moses is like 80 years old when he goes back to let my people go. Let my people go. You know, like he's 80 years old. And you might think, what a waste all those years. Guys, he, he didn't waste one of those years. Every one of those years was grace. Every one of those years, God was doing something in his life. And if you've been through something like that, like Moses, God hasn't wasted any of your years either. I think a lot of times we think like, you know, sin gets us in a situation where we're, you know, disciplined and God's working with us and it's this big delays and God is not wasting any of that time. He's not wasting any of that time. God still has a plan for Moses. He still has one for you. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help and their cry for rescue came up to God. This is kind of like a meanwhile back at the ranch deal. So you're like, you're in Midian, and then all of a sudden, this is what's going on back in Egypt. And what's going on is the people are praying. And so what God's going to do is he's going to answer those prayers in Egypt by calling Moses at the burning bush. And next week, Gabe's going to preach on Moses' calling at the burning bush. But that burning bush where God calls Moses was a response to the people's burning prayers back home. Prayers that they were probably praying for years and then God acts. And, and so, and finally, look at, look at verse 24 and 25. We finally see the identity of the true Redeemer. Take a look at verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And we've got a slide here for verses 11 and 25. But look at your Bible and look. So the first verse of our section is verse 25. Our last one, or first one's uh, 11. The last one's verse 25. Look at those two verses and look at the similarity between them. It says that in, in 11, it says that one day Moses had grown up. He came out, he saw his people, he saw their burdens. And it says he saw, and remember that Hebrew word for saw, is that he felt compassion. He saw their suffering. He felt compassion. Now look at verse 25, the very last verse of this section. The author does this intentionally, I think. God heard their groaning and he remembered. And it says God saw his people. Isn't that cool? There's a mirroring there. Um, that God alone is the true redeemer. That, that Moses' heart in verse 11 is just a reflection of the deeper heart of God in verse 25. That, that Moses wants to save his people, and God wants it even more, and only God can do it. Amen? So, it, like Moses, we see that God saw the suffering and the, and the slavery of his people, and he felt compassion for them. And God, this is cool, guys. God, like Moses, was not content to stay in the comforts of his palace while his people are in bondage, right? God, like Moses, was not content to stay in the comforts of his palace while his people are in bondage. And we see that ultimately, guys, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we see God the Son leaving the comforts of his palace in heaven to come down and identify with the sufferings of his people. Like Moses, Jesus came to be a shepherd and a redeemer. Like Moses, Jesus was rejected by his own people. But unlike Moses, Jesus came not to kill his enemies, but to be killed for them. He came not to kill his enemies, but to be killed for them, to be killed for us. Because guys, by our sin against God, we have made ourselves God's enemies. Because our problem was not that we didn't have a relationship with God. Everyone has a relationship with God. Before you were in Christ, you had a relationship with God. It was a bad one. Okay? You're his enemy. That's a relationship. It's not the one you want, right? We were his enemies. And because we were his enemies, there was no way we could be our own redeemer. There was no way we could save ourselves. Guys, we can't even help him redeem us. 
okay? We, we're his enemies. We couldn't even help him redeem us. There is no, like, help-wanted sign over the cross, okay? But there was a cry of, it is finished. Religion believes that, you know, religions other than Christianity believe that there's some sort of a help-wanted sign there. He didn't need your help. You couldn't help. You're his enemy. You're in bondage. You're in slavery. And we guys were in slavery, unlike the Jews. We were in slavery because of our own sin. And so there's no help-wanted sign over the cross. There is a cry of it is finished. And thank God that unlike Moses, Jesus came to be killed for his enemies, not to kill them. To be killed in our place for our sin. To redeem us from the penalty of the law. And so at the cross, just like in Exodus, God made clear that he alone has the power to save. Amen? And so he alone gets the glory. And that's super important, guys, is that if we try to add anything of ourself to our salvation, it might sound like we're being more, we're taking sin more seriously. It might sound like in some way we're, you know, more moral or something like that. If you try to add anything to the cross, it's an insult to God and you're robbing him of glory. That's why it's important, guys. That's why it's important. That's why, you know, legalism, moralism, where we try to add some of our own works to the completed work of Jesus Christ is an offense to God because it's an it's a, it's a attempt to steal his glory. And, and that's what we celebrate, guys, in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us every week that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. Amen? If you're trusting in Jesus' death alone for your forgiveness for all of your sins. So Jesus on the cross paid for all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. He drank that cup of God's judgment for your sins dry. And that's what we remember as we take the bread and the cup. We remember by the bread, his broken body for our sins, that he was in his physical body nailed to a cross and died for us in our place to, to pay for our sins. And that's the kind of love that Jesus has for you. And the cup reminds us of his blood that washes away all our sin. Another thing that the Lord's Supper does, though, guys, is it feeds us. The Belgic Confession puts it this way. The Lord's Supper is a spiritual table. Listen to this. This is what you are invited to if you're a believer. A spiritual table at which Christ communicates to himself with all his benefits at that table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as his merits. I love that part. He makes us enjoy himself. We enjoy him, not just what he's done. Enjoy himself as much as his merits of his suffering and death. And what he does for the Lord's table is he nourishes and strengthens and comforts our poor, destitute souls. And so if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, we'd ask you to come forward and take the bread and the cup in remembrance and to be fed. Now, if you're not trusting in Jesus, we'd ask that you don't take it. We'd ask that you take him. It makes no sense to take this if you're not taking him. And so uh, only do it if you are. Let's pray. Father, you have fed us so richly by the food of your word. Even to have like 14 little verses there in Exodus and have so much nourishment for us there. Lord, you have fed us richly with the food of your perfect, holy, inerrant, savory word. And we pray, Lord, that as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would feed us from the food of your table. Let it be to us, Lord, this, this time of taking your supper. Let it be to us a time of grace in the desert, just as you gave Moses. A time of grace in the desert where we remember your forgiving grace. And we receive a meal of your forming grace. Make us strong in grace, Lord, to love and do all that you've commanded. Lord, give us that heart that delights in the things you command. 
and loves and longs for the things that you promise. Lord, we pray that you do it for your glory and for our joy. And we pray that you do it in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.